Howdy folks, welcome to the Fortuna Monsoon Podcast. I'm Chris Franks, and today we are bringing you the second part of Olivia Pepper's Trans-Siberian Pilgrimage. We're going to join up with her on the Trans-Siberian Express, where she is drinking some thick coffee from an old Russian dining car. Um, She's going to make her way to Finland, to Prague, and Berlin, uh, where she talks a little bit about a philosopher's group that she joined, and uh, (laughs) an interesting time standing in line at the Bergheim nightclub. Uh, She's also going to take us with her to Paris, uh, where she talks a bit about poetic action, psychomagic, and performing a dance that meant a lot to her, Uh, and eventually to Iceland, uh, where she has a a bit of a conversation with the whale and also sees the northern lights. Uh, It's a big journey. I hope you joined us for part one. Uh, If you haven't listened to part one, uh, listen to that one as well, maybe before you listen to this one. Um, and uh, at the end of the episode, I'm going to tell you a couple of the ways in which you can support Olivia. Uh, she reads tarot and does astrological writings uh, and does some courses as well. Um, and so stay tuned after the interview for some ways that you can be involved with Olivia, her work, and support her. Thanks for listening. Here's Olivia Pepper. So you guys got a compartment to your own. Is that that kind of style of train where you have yeah. a little, a little, yeah, enclosed compartment? That's cool. Yeah, there's apparently there's a third class train that runs that's just like standing room only almost, but wow. it's much more local than the one that we got. So mm. we got a compartment. We had our own little space, and there's four um, pallets in there. Basically, there's like. Mm-hmm two above that kind of pull down these lofts their mm-hmm. benches and so we just like left one of them folded up and we kind of you know there were three of us and so we had one that was like constantly a bench where we had our bags and stuff and we would make tea on the train and talk and um the trans-siberian from ulaanbaatar to moscow takes six days mm-hmm. and so we wow. were on the train six days watching wildflowers and mm. watching the landscape change passing the shores of lake baikal and just talking and laughing playing cards we made friends with a couple of australians on the train and played cards with them served them tea and mm. we just kind of lived on this train for for a week wow um, yeah every That's morning cool. i would go to the dining car and i would order this really thick coffee like mm. um I get this kind of like Turkish coffee. Awesome. And I would have that and I would do some writing and the, one of the dining car attendants, um, kind of like fell in love with me and Mm. (laughs) (laughs) he was this grumpy old Russian with sailor tattoos, probably in his sixties. And he was being really like kind of, kind of gross in a way. And I was like, (laughs) all right, this guy is, he's just like a lech. Like he just stares at me Uh and he like, you know, kind of flirts in like my terrible Russian and his Russian. And I can tell he's saying that I'm like his ideal woman or something. And I'm like, Oh God. And I'm just like, okay, so this guy just, he just does this. He's just like hassling everyone, but no, it was only me. Oh, he had the sweets <laughs> for you. <laughs> he did. Um, wow. and it was funny. He would tell me like how strong I was. That was uh-huh. what he would say all the time. He would be like, 
gesture to his bicep and be like, huh. yeah, you're strong. That's <laughs> he was cool. Into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In spite of you being vegetarian still, you're, you're yeah, like, everyone is really remarking how strong you are. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. Lots of strength. Um, yeah. <laughs> But it was funny because, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I was traveling. I had very short hair at the time, wasn't mm -hmm. wearing any kind of makeup, was just in jeans. And that's not necessarily the uh, preferred Russian uh, perception of femininity, <laughs> right? right? <That's> uh -huh. <laughs> but he just, he loved me. I think he probably wow. would have taken me away to St. Petersburg and married me or something like that. But Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's, we arrived after our time on the train, which that much time on a train, things get really, they get weird. I bet. Know? Yeah. Um, how, did, how did it start to, you know, decompose, like, as you went well, along? it was, I mean, one thing is, like, you get off at these station stops. They'll stop for a couple hours at a time, and people holding U.S. passports are not really allowed to wander in all parts of Russia, especially mm. in the East. And so we had to kind of stay close to the train. Um, but you would get off, and you notice that you don't know how to walk without this sort of wobbly motion. Mm. Like you just get, it's like being yeah. on a ship or a boat. Yeah. Um, you're kind of like, you have your train legs and yeah. you can't figure out how to walk. Right. And, Weird. um, yeah. And the dreams that I would have on the train were different. They were a different quality. Mm. I can't quite explain how, but they were just different and mm. time kind of melts. And, um, of course, like my phone stopped working. I didn't have any, I had no carrier in Russia or in Mongolia. Mm. So my phone was just kind of like a useless brick. I could take mm -hmm. pictures, which I did some, but, um, you don't have any kind of cognizance of like what time it is exactly or, um, yeah, or what. So I read, mm. uh, Narcissus and Goldman by Herman Hesha up mm. in my little loft. I read a whole novel and, did some writing and the train kind of the train trip sort of brought me back to myself in a way it was like this the combination of this very surreal dream state time in Mongolia and then this week on the train so that by the time I got to Moscow I felt like I was suddenly kind of recognizing a lot of things that had been going on with me like yeah. really looking face to face at my kind of despair that I had been living with, mm. that I'd been kind of trying to like push away. Um, I had gone through a breakup some time before, but I really had not processed it. This was when Dave Cole and I split up. Mm. And um, it was funny because he, he's a Russian Jew huh. and I had not realized when I got to Moscow that, so many people would look just like Dave Cole. Wow. <laughs> so you really <laughs> so had to like face your issues like directly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. cool. Well, oh, boy. where, uh, there, mm. there he is. And there he is again. And there he is again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so yeah, Moscow was kind of like, all right, I'm going to look at, I'm going to look at this. Um, it was also interesting because Moscow was one of the first places where, I was not able to take advantage of one of my spiritual opportunities because I was not dressed appropriately to enter an Orthodox huh. church. Oh, wow. Um, and Orthodox so, Christian church. Yeah, Eastern mm. Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox, yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, so there's, you know, pretty strict guidelines about um, 
women wearing skirts and having their head and shoulders covered. And mm. I was wearing a tank top, so I couldn't go in because of... I had I had put on a skirt to be polite, but I had not known that I had to have my shoulders covered as well. Mm. So I was kind of uh, not able to go into this this cathedral. And that mm. was an interesting like feeling where I was like, okay, so here I am in, in Moscow. Um, and Moscow was, it was interesting to be there as well, especially again, going back to this like pre Trump thing yeah. where it was just like, what is going on with Russia? There were, right. they there were working this... hard to make sure that he got into office. <laughs> is what they were doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> There was this thing that I will, I think I will never forget this either, but it was not mm. a remarkable, lovely feeling. It was like a feeling of terror and gloom. Mm. I climbed out of the subway station in Moscow uh -huh. and I was in downtown and I came up out of the underground. By the way, the subway systems in Russia are incredibly beautiful. Really? Why? The most what, what beautiful are they, what are underground. They like? There's mm. one that is tiled in all like emerald green glass oh, wow. and it has bronze chandeliers. Whoa. Like it's just extraordinary. That's amazing. They're, they're beautiful mm. and they're very, um, they have like these gorgeous tiled arches. It's kind of very Moorish looking. Mm. Um, the influence in the twenties and thirties, I think was very Northern African in mm. the architecture. So wow. it's very beautiful. And a lot of them are still very intact from their original. Um, so, but I climbed out in downtown and upon climbing out, I look up and there's a huge mural on the side of a building, a skyscraper. And it's this mural and you can tell it's from the chin down and it's, you can tell it's Vladimir Putin, mm. like his chin, his tie, his chest. And there's a blender. He's standing at a counter and there's a blender and his finger is hovering right over a button on the blender. Mm. And inside the blender are three piranhas looking very vicious mm -hmm. and their scales are the American flag. Whoa. That is bizarre. Huh. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to like think about that for a while. Just yeah. Just like what, what that all means. Like, have, yeah, you, have you thought would, about it? Like, can you, what, what is it, what do you, what does it mean? <laughs> well, I mean, all I could see was basically that it was like, it was a feeling that, uh, the United States of America is vicious, carnivorous, and like, almost like mindless or something like mm -hmm. the piranha as right. a m metaphor for that. It just this kind of like vicious self-serving attack mm. but that the impression was like Putin the powerful is going to just like frappe these fuckers mm. <laughs> it wow was, it was pretty bold yeah wow um, interesting yeah yeah and he's just gonna like drink like a like a, a per American piranha smoothie at some point in his day like, yeah 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 it wow. seemed very macho you know yeah. it was like it was like, uh, we're going to crush them wow. and it's going to be easy. Mm. Um, I remember thinking of the phrase, like shooting fish in a barrel. Mm. Mm -hmm. I was like, like blending piranhas in a blender. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, wow. Mm. Yeah. So that was a strange moment for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. And then, um, 
Russia. We went, we took a train to St. Petersburg. Both Moscow and St. Petersburg are beautiful, extraordinary. Um, Their architecture and the quality of light there is extraordinary. And um, yeah, it was, it was wonderful to be in those spaces and just to see the, again, I found myself surprised by my, the misrepresentations of Russia that I had Mm. learned, like the idea that it was going to be all sort of like pastoral and backwoods and all very white and Moscow and St. Petersburg are not like that. They're very, um, very technologically forward. I think there's Mm. free Wi-Fi all over both cities. Um, the subway maps are really, really advanced. Like the way that you can look at the station map on their little digital view finder um really easy to navigate and um lots of immigrants from all over it seemed like there were a lot of um middle eastern people and a lot of northern africans um in moscow in particular Hmm. um not to say that you know the social dynamics are necessarily any better but i was under the false assumption that they were very white and kind of like Mm. behind the times and they seemed to be neither of those things yeah Hmm. interesting so yeah that was curious um i ended up having a really interesting conversation with a russian over dinner in finland Hmm. about uh what we had been told about one another's countries growing up oh that's cool what did he have to say about what they heard well that was what was really fascinating because I asked and he said, um, he said in elementary school, we learned that your police, and again, this was very topical at the time, but he's around my age, maybe a little younger, maybe late twenties. And he said, in elementary school, we learned that your police hate black people and they kill Mm. them all the time. Wow. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, (laughs) that's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Still true. And most U S citizens were only waking up to that. Most white U S citizens were only waking up to that within the past five years, but he had been raised with that impression from a very young age. He said that he had seen the Rodney King video when he was like six years old. Wow. Hmm. So Yeah. yeah, that was a strange thing to see. That is, I mean, I, I don't, I don't even recall seeing that until you know, being an adult. I mean, I remember hearing about yeah. it, but like actually really seeing it. Yeah. And that's interesting. They, they, I guess had shared it in school or not, maybe not shared the video, but at least like they had discussed the situations around it. And, and I yeah. guess they knew about the video. Wow. Um, what did you have to say about, I guess, what, what you had heard about his country? Well, I remember saying that, um, i there were some things that I thought about how Russians were all nationalistic. Mm. That was what I had been raised with was that there was like this idea of like the motherland, right. mother Russia, and that everybody was just like very not like nationalistic and very patriotic. Um, and he said, no, you know, that's, that has recently come back with Putin. But in mm. reality, like, Russians went through an experience of questioning governmental leadership and being very defiant in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, you know, so it was, it was interesting because I realized that I had had kind of a 
blind spot about Russia as a as a country coming into its own power. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just had not thought of Russia as being a very powerful place or like a place that much of the world would pay much attention to. But, but I think, you know, one of the things that I was very relieved to learn for myself when I was traveling and I learned it pretty quick in China, I've always, um, kind of gone along with, um, what's it, what's his name? The writer who wrote infinite jest. I don't know why I'm like oh, blanking on his I name. Can't right remember. Now. Um, he was also a, a suicidal writer, mm. so maybe I identify with him. Mm-hmm. But I remember there was something that he said that was, um, most people aren't thinking about you at all. Like most things aren't about you and most people are, are not thinking about you. And that yeah. that's one of the biggest things you can do to kind of like grow in your character is recognize that people aren't thinking about you. Right. And I think that people in the U.S. are raised with this idea that the world looks to us and is obsessed with us and is thinking about us all the time. Mm-hmm. And they don't. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like, particularly in Russia, I think that mm. they they do not have the same kind of, like, rivalry or, like, uh, they don't seek to emulate us in the way that I think I was maybe raised to believe mm. that... They're, they feel, you know, I, I think I was told that Russia feels like neck and neck in competition with us. And mm-hmm. what I learned is that I believe that Russia in many ways feels very superior. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so that was curious to that's see. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's when things kind of like, it definitely the mood of travel changed when we got into Finland. We were only in Russia for a couple of days because we had gotten in kind of later than intended. And so we had to leave for one of my friend's visas so that we didn't get stuck in Russia. Um, and we made our way to Finland. We, we had a hilarious, hilarious thing happen where there's a boat, there's a boat route between St. Petersburg and Helsinki. Mm-hmm. And we decided we would take a boat because, you know, we had just taken a long train. So why not take an overnight boat? Yeah, mix it up. And we, <laughs> we, we were under the impression that it was a ferry of some kind. Okay. But it was actually extra space on a cruise. <laughs> oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> that had already been roaming around in the Baltic for like two weeks uh-huh. and so we entered onto this cruise ship which i had never been on before wow. into the company of a lot of europeans over 50 Amazing. who had been traveling with each other for two weeks mm-hmm. who had so they'd already developed this like really intense social stratification yeah. and like <laughs> people had rivalries and people had alliances and uh, wow. we were like we were party to an argument on the elevator between like two Swedes and a Frenchman and a German who were like bickering about this, whether or not this guy's wife was too fat to get in the elevator with us. Oh my it God. was terrible. Wow. Um, but it was also <laughs> hilarious. They yeah. were playing really bad techno. There were these like rooftop bars. It was summer in the North. So it never got completely dark out. Uh-huh. So I was just up on the deck at like two o'clock in the morning in this kind of twilight watching yeah. the sea. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It was a funny way to arrive in Finland. <laughs> How did you find out about this boat? Like, 
Where do they, where do they sell like the cheap like extra room tickets for the cruise ships? <laughs> well, we knew that um, we knew that there was a boat route, uh-huh. and so we looked. I think I think actually we used Google Maps mm-hmm. from Saint Petersburg to look at the routes to Helsinki, mm-hmm. and then from there we just like clicked on these boat departure times and it let you choose different boats to get on. Mm. But I think, you know, we, like we were, we're thinking that we were buying ferry tickets, but that's actually just how they do it. They like the unsold rooms on the cruise line turn into ferry boat prices just to get you from Petersburg to Helsinki. Well, that's cool to know (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and weird. Like, yeah. And it, it wasn't very expensive for an all-night boat ride either for that distance. I think it was only like, maybe it was like $30 a person mm. or something no, like that. Bad. But no, it was it was pretty straightforward. And um, Katie Rose had a connection through uh, the school, through the master's program that Katie's in in Pittsburgh. Mm. Uh, one of the professors at Carnegie Mellon was at an artist residency on an island called Somenlina off the coast of Helsinki. Mm. And so we joined them there, this group of artists. And it was a wonderful entry back into sort of like Europe, um, Mm. where, again, I had never been. But it was great for me to kind of like reconnect with artists. And it was the first time that I had been able to speak in English with anyone other than my traveling companions for for a while, because a lot of folks there in Finland the education system people learn English in high school Mm, mm -hmm. and so many many Finns especially people like under 30 speak very fluent pretty unaccented English Mm, so yeah yeah, so we were Mm -hmm. kind of re-entered into that dynamic and that was good Um, yeah yeah and then it like the the second leg of the journey was um more concentrated in kind of art. I went Mm. from there. We went, we took a cheap flight and met a really dear friend of mine in Prague. He was on tour in Europe for the summer and he was, I think he was in Austria, so he couldn't come all the way to Berlin. So we decided to meet in the middle and go to Prague and Prague was fantastic. And I wish I had had more time to spend there. Mm. I went to a, um, a medieval alchemist's laboratory museum. I bet you love that. How was that? (laughs) Uh, It was amazing. It's like, I have a few recommendations for Prague Mm. if people are there, which Mm. one of them is this alchemist's museum because it's just, it's beautiful. It's extraordinary. You get to stand in a place that Copernicus stood. So like, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. Um, and you just get to like learn all kinds of things about the practice of alchemy and how Prague was like the golden city of the sciences at one time. It mm. was the place where all of the early scientists, when alchemy was making, you know, alchemy is the godmother of chemistry. And mm-hmm. so it is the forebear of our modern sciences. And people were restricted from practicing their work by the repressive church. Mm. But Prague was kind of this space in the 15th, 16th century where there was a lot more freedom. So people would go there to study astronomy or to study medical sciences or to study chemistry. Um, So that's an amazing place to learn and just kind of get connected. And then the other thing that is amazing is just this, um, this permanent installation of 
the works of this living, um, I guess he's a miniaturist really, but Hmm. this person who builds these um, pieces of artwork that are made inside the eyes of needles, like tiny, tiny things that you have to use a magnifying glass to look at. Wow. Um, There's one that's like a caravan of camels made out of 24 karat gold. And there are 10 camels laden with merchandise inside the eye of a needle. That's crazy. It's extraordinary. Wow. Um, Prague feels like a magic city. Hmm. Like it's saturated in magic. And it was Hmm. hilarious because I read Kafka a lot, right? And Uh I've always thought that Kafka, his vision of things is just so surreal and it appeals to me so much. It's like this Europe's magical realism. Mm. And then I went there and it was so funny because I was like, wait, Kafka's just writing very honestly about what Prague feels like. Huh. Like it's, wow. yeah. <laughs> he's not weird. Prague is fucking weird. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's a matter of place. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and that was that was lovely. Then I went to Berlin for a month, and Berlin Berlin is where I did kind of lose it a little mm. bit. I almost didn't make it to Paris. I fell into a really deep depression, and I had rented this flat from my friend who's Bulgarian. She was in the Mediterranean with her father for the month of August, and so I was in her room, and I had wonderful friends in Berlin and opportunities to do so many things. And mostly I just kind of walked around and then there came this point where I didn't really feel like I could go out. And I was Mm. in the apartment for a few days, just feeling like this agoraphobic overwhelm. I called friends in the States and was kind of like, I, I just didn't know what to do. I was Mm. at kind of wits end there. Um, Mm. And I think some of it was the extraordinary moody heaviness of Berlin itself Mm. as a place. And some of it was the mounting political dread that I was feeling because Mm. when I got to Berlin, I ended up becoming part of a women's philosophers guild there, which I'm still a part of and which I value a lot. Mm. They, yeah, they encouraged me to like, think of myself as a philosopher and give myself credit for my ruminations. And, um, and all of my friends in Berlin, they, I remember this moment where a friend turned to me and he like put his hand on my forearm and he said, your country is about to elect a fascist. Are you ready? Mm. And that was when it like sunk in to me. I knew before my friends knew that Trump would be elected. I knew from August 2016 when I was in Germany. I was like, this can happen. It might happen. It will happen. And we have to get ready. Hmm. I think I've got got some questions about that, but I might save them until later. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, but also like Berlin, Berlin's a heavy place to be. Hmm. Why do you think that is? Uh, the war and mm. the way that there's a style of architecture there that preserves war damage. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've ever been there before, but yes, there's a way that they kind of preserved some of the buildings that were destroyed in the Blitz to keep the buildings open, but to show how things had burned or collapsed. Um, there's this like kind of 
unflinching awareness of the destruction of war. Mm. Um, and there's this art project that is done actually all over Europe, but it's highly concentrated in Berlin. Maybe you know it. It's these little bronze markers the size of a cobblestone that are placed in the street in front of houses where yeah. Jews were taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would walk the streets and explore and look at graffiti and go to different art galleries. And I was very conscious of that project. Mm. I was very conscious when I was crossing over these markers at these places where people had been yeah. taken away in the night. Um, so there was that, that kind of feeling. Um, and then also maybe it was just kind of the people that I was connecting with, but there definitely seemed to be this sort of like, uh, like, um, existential kind of like desperation among some of the population there. Um, Mm. just a feeling of like, what do we do about how hard things are in the world? And then in Berlin, a lot of times the answer is like, do nothing about it because you can't just take these party drugs and stay up for three days. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Uh Which was not necessarily part of my experience. Although I did get into Bergheim, the most like Mm. exclusive club in Berlin, Okay, which is it's four stories tall. It's this famous dance club that used to be an exclusively gay club. Now it's um, mixed, but it's so famous and so exclusive that, the doorman has his own Wikipedia page. Wow. He's like notorious (laughs) for, uh, and he makes these snap judgments about people's fashion. Wow. Does he tell you? Yeah. (laughs) What do you think? Oh yeah. Okay. (laughs) He'll tell you like, you're tacky, you're ugly, like just whatever. Mm -hmm. But so everybody there is like wearing black. They have the coolest haircuts. They're showing like the right amount of skin, but not too much. Like Mm. you can't be trashy. There's this kind of like, perfect stride to hit in Berlin Mm. but you know like I'm in this line that's a block long and everybody's in their mm, mid-20s for the most part shaved heads like very cool kind of avant-garde jewelry you know like maybe one silver earring Mm -hmm. and then like this net shirt and then these (laughs) distressed linen overalls and (laughs) army boots and like you know endless iterations of this and then i am wearing these platform velcro sandals that Mm -hmm. i bought in china and a (laughs) almost floor-length flannel dress (laughs) oh my god blue and black plaid wow um and i had (laughs) my head shaved and i was there just waiting in line and like i'm the most dressed person by far in the Mm -hmm. line and among the older people and i'm american and he's pretty notorious for really not liking people especially from the states and i get up to the front and the thing is i didn't really want to be there and i had entered this state in my depression where i was just sort of like going through the motions trying to do things but i didn't really have the energy to fake anything anymore yeah and so I got to the front and he looked me up and down and he was like, he was like, do you even want to go inside? And I said, <laughs> I said, you know what? To be honest, I don't really care. <laughs> and then he said, that's cool. Go ahead. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. I mean, 
Yeah. Also, it just sounds so like German and existentialist, like the yeah. conversation in a nutshell. But like it, it was, <laughs> it was, it was weirdly perfect. Yeah. Like I was like, uh, but yeah, I think that's the reason that I made friends with Germans too, was because mm. they sort of appreciate that quality. Um, yeah. Of just being like, whatever, I, I'm sad. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. Like, there's, they, they like it. They appreciate it. Um, mm. But I, I went and I stayed up all night at Berkheim and uh, I danced and it was, I mean, it, objectively, it was actually a very good experience. One of the mm. things that I really loved about the club scene in Berlin, because I did go out a few times, um, was that there's, it's not like the meat market feeling mm. of going out in the U.S. at all. Like people don't bother women in club settings there. And if they do, they are really promptly asked to leave. Mm. Wow. Mm -hmm. So that was a pretty fascinating yeah, I bet thing. That's a relief. I felt it's cool. I felt totally safe. And I don't yeah. go out dancing in the US usually just because of it's not often me because I think I've got my boundaries straight at this point to the point where people are like, I probably shouldn't fuck with her. But I always get involved with like seeing someone else getting fucked with. Mm. And it's just like it ruins my night because yeah. I'm I'm always stepping in and being like, hey, man, she doesn't want to talk to you. Why are you being a creep? And then there's like stupid dialogue back and forth. Mm. But in Germany, I didn't have to worry about it at all because everybody who's watching the floor is like making sure nobody's being predatory. <clears throat> That's cool. um, yeah. My friend who lives there, who's a naturalized citizen in Berlin, but she's from the States. I hung out with her a couple times and I talked to her about that dynamic. And I remember her saying, oh, well, you know, that's because Berlin's so sex positive mm. where like there are just sex clubs in Berlin where it's huh. like if you want to have group sex, you go here. And if you want to like watch people do bondage, you go here. <laughs> and if you want to dance, you just go dance. Wow. So, so it's, yeah, it's almost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it can be it can be held separately because it's so accepted. Or it's just like, exactly. they're not, it's like, it's like, eh, not, you're not bothered because you're just here to dance. Like, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody who's there to dance is just there to dance. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so fantastic music in Berlin, like amazing, cutting edge, revolutionary techno music. Um, it's funny for me in my early thirties to be like <laughs> really into this techno scene all of a sudden. <laughs> Are you still listening to it? Has it? Has it like lasted? Oh yeah. Are you still into it? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, some of the folks I was meeting there are my friends who are in this experimental techno band called Capiac. They're like, Oh, oh I know Capiac. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. So I was there with Eric and Delwyn and oh. Delwyn knew all the right DJs to go see. And so we would just go and watch these people and, you know, it's a legendary scene that's been around for a really long time. And in Berlin, it's just really big. It's just more accepted for people to be into it. My friend Elitza, whose room I was subletting um, her flat, you know, she's, I think she's probably 45. And mm -hmm. she's like, you know, total party girl from mm. Bulgaria, used to be a model in the 90s and mm. like still goes out and stays out all night. And she loves techno. And there's just, it's much more... Um, accepted i think hmm. than it is in the u.s or, or less exclusive maybe yeah so kind of the the general vibe of the music there is like very good gritty techno music that's which cool I found that i liked mm -hmm. yeah 
<laughs> but yeah, it was Berlin was a hard time for me, and I almost didn't make it to Paris. Hmm. Um, I didn't have my tickets in order. I knew that my flight back was leaving. Well, had I bought my flight back? No, no, I bought my flight home while I was in Berlin. Okay. Um, where were I you hadn't leaving bought the from? return ticket. Mm. Well, that's the thing I didn't know. And mm. I was almost like feeling like I'm just so tired and worn down and feeling overwhelmed that mm. I think I'm just going to fly back from Berlin. Wow. Um, and then I didn't. And I'm so glad that I didn't because even though I was really dragging ass, I was having mm. a really hard time, but I, I made it to Paris and I celebrated my birthday in Paris and I got to go and... I began, during the month of August, I began choreographing a dance for mm -hmm. my friend Jake, because Jake had been a dancer, and that was what was really important to him. And I never considered myself a dancer, but I was trying to break through this wall. And as I was going out and clubbing, I was realizing, like, I can dance, I can move, like, it's okay, I can do this. And so I was really, like, moving through a lot of feelings while doing that, and I remember... Mm. Um, that was when I kind of like began to cry was in Berlin and I hadn't cried in so long. And I, I remember one time like dancing and crying and then stepping outside to like hastily write a poem that was dedicated to Sam who had mm. killed himself at the beginning of the year. And that was like the first time that I had really um, allowed myself to write about him or to feel anything about him um, mm. really. So that was, I was kind of moving through all that. And, and while I was in my flat in Berlin, I began to choreograph this dance piece for Jake in memoriam to him. And I kind of just came back to this point of faith where I was like, okay, this is what's going to happen. What's going to happen is I'm going to go to Paris and I'm going to perform this dance. I'm going to celebrate my birthday. And then I had hoped to see the Northern Lights. They had not been visible in Finland. Mm. And so when I was shopping for flights home, I found uh, there's like a Iceland Air will fly. You know, they have this sort of cheap flight if you do a layover in Iceland because they're trying mm. to like get you to stay. Mm. So I was like... Hell, you know, I'll do it. I'll fly from Paris. I'll stay a couple of days in Iceland and then I'll fly back to the States. And um, so I took a cheap inter like Europe flight from Berlin to Paris with my friends Bonnie and Ian. And um, we rented an Airbnb in Montmartre and um, stayed there on the hillside. And that was where... I had wanted to be and mostly the few days that I was in Paris, I was just like overwhelmed and crying a lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like processing a bunch of things. It was my birthday mm. and my friend Irene was living in Paris. So I invited her and my friend Cheyenne Rigaud, who's a Frenchman who I'd met in Los Angeles some years ago and I hadn't seen him, but I managed to get in touch with him and invite him and he took a train um, and came from Toulouse for my birthday and that was really special to see him again after all that time mm. and so kind of like re-entered into some sort of like fragile but defiant joy mm. in Paris um and another another time that I went was that I went to the Sacre-Cœur uh, Cathedral and that's you know Sacred Heart it's this like has a strange history but 
it's very beautiful, very famous. And I was not raised with any kind of organized religion, but I went there and I ended up like praying on my knees in the cathedral to like get some kind of relief from the suffering that I had been experiencing. Um, and that was the morning of the, of September 7th. And we went and visited the cemetery and, um, saw Oscar Wilde's grave and saw the grave of Chopin. And, um, my friend Ian got kicked out of the cemetery for playing the violin. (laughs) Um, yeah, because some, Locals gave him money, and then the uh, cemetery attendant was uh, like, no busking, get uh, out, like very angry. Um, mm-hmm. But at sundown on September 7th, I went, and my friends took video of me performing this dance uh, in this little grotto looking at the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. Um, yeah. And I did this dance that I had you know, worked on and practiced for the past six weeks uh, in memory of my friend. And after I had performed it, I had this kind of feeling of like exhilaration. And we went and um, ate dinner and had a bottle of wine. And I remember like realizing with this kind of heady, like rush, like, oh my God, I'm in Paris. I'm in Paris. <laughs> um, like almost like it's just hitting you. Yeah, I was only there for a few days mm. because I had gotten so kind of like run down and um, and disconsolate. And there was also like, there was a thing that had happened where in China, my credit card information had been compromised. And so there was like this money challenge that was going mm. on. And it was, I was just feeling like insecure and unstable about where I was going after I got back to the States and like, you know, there's kind of all these weird things happening. Um, and so, yeah, I had only, I'd been in Paris at that point for, I think a day and a half when I had this sort of flood of recognition. Cause I, mm. like many people, I think I had dreamed of going to Paris for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it suddenly hit me, I just had this feeling of like, I was like, holy shit, I can do anything. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? I'm in Paris. Uh-huh. I just did this dance. Like, there were, I just, yeah. what? Mm. What happened? And, yeah. So that was that was this whole day where, like, in the morning I prayed at the Sacré-Cœur. In the day I kind of wandered, went to the cemetery, said hello to Paris's dead, especially some mm. luminaries who were very important to mm-hmm. me. Um, and then did this dance and... And I, I cried afterwards and I was startled to realize that I had come from this place where for so, for many years, actually, I didn't cry easily or openly. And mm. then I found myself just kind of like crying and talking to my friends in Paris. And they were, of course, like warm and loving because that's what friends are. And mm. I realized that I didn't have to be afraid of crying in front of people and that I could just kind of be my whole strange self and um yeah yeah. so realizing that the journey was drawing to a close it was like I it kind of all came together in a really beautiful way which I think I was lucky for this this adventure to like wrap itself up so 
almost so neatly, you know, it was like, mm. you did what you came here to do. Right. You feel like capable and powerful. You, you did it, you made it, you survived, like you didn't die. And, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sounds yeah. like you, I mean, you, you did more than just not die. You know, <laughs> you, you, you really, it sounds like you really, you experienced a lot, but you also sound like you were, you worked through a lot by doing it, you yeah. know, and, and you even did some kind of difficult things. I mean, it sounds like it's still not completely over yet. Cause you, I, just, I know you, you had mentioned seeing the Northern Lights, but, but just mm-hmm. even just getting to this kind of, uh, maybe a little bit of an apex of doing this dance um, in honor of your friend um, in, in Paris, like it's, you know, a lot of people might just say, you know, well, they might just, you know, kind of slough that off and not consider doing it for real, you know, or just take it as a, as something that you had talked about doing or something that you maybe wanted to, but you wouldn't push yourself to actually act out. And I think there is something, there's something really big to be said for actually acting it out. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I hope that yeah. it's, it sounds like that really maybe helped things to move for you as well, you know, it internally. Did. Yeah, it really did. It was like, um, I don't know, I, I found it interesting because I, I study the work of Alejandro Jodorowsky mm. just in the past year or so. And he's based mm. in Paris. Yeah. Um, and people always told me like, oh, you've got to read his work. You've got to know him. Like, And I'd seen mm. a couple of his films. But just being a tarot reader and a mystic and doing this stuff. And it was so fascinating because I had never read about um, psychomagic, which is his sort of ritual. He calls it um, poetic action, mm. which is something that like I always talked about, too. Like you have to have these symbolist gestures that you do. Like prayer is kind of symbolist gesture. And like leaving my lucky coin in the hand of this deva was like, I'm doing this thing that has yep. big magic behind it. And I don't really... like. Who knows why that has such a big feeling? Right. Who knows Who knows why, like, I woke up at dawn in my yurt in Mongolia and just wandered out into the desert alone until I couldn't even see where I had come from mm-hmm. and found this perfect stone. Like, I don't know why these things happen or why they have such symbolic significance, but people have to do them to, like, give themselves and their lives meaning. And I yeah. had to do them to be able to mark these times and... In many ways, my time in Iceland was like a, it was like a prologue. Like that's, yeah. Paris is where it the story like ended. sounds like the denouement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then it was like, and then we go to Iceland. Um, mm. And, and part of it was that I was entirely alone when I went to Iceland. Like I had been with traveling companions or had known people or had friends of friends or something, every other place that I went. Mm-hmm. And I'd spent time alone, like, you know, certain days I would go walking by myself or I would go out to a show alone or whatever, but there were always people I knew somewhere around. And in Iceland, I knew no one. I flew there alone from Paris. I stayed there alone by the sea and I flew back Mm. to the States alone. Mm. And, um, there I was, um, when I first arrived in Iceland and I took a cab from the airport to the place that I had found to rent, which was all I rented was like this little trailer right by the sea, because I just wanted to be close to the ocean in a place that was quiet where I didn't really have to interact with people. Mm. And, um, it was September 11th Mm. and, um, 
I was there and I walked down to the sea and almost immediately this huge whale like twisted up out of the water and lifted its fin up and I could see all the seawater like falling off of its fin and involuntarily I called out to it and I said I'm here I'm here (laughs) wow that's great Uh and um it was this kind of like you know I barely spoke the few days that I was there because I just didn't interact with people that much and I can be very sociable but I didn't feel like it I felt in this really introspective space and so I would just walk around quiet and not talk to anybody um and the couple of times that I remember speaking in Iceland once was when the whale popped up and I called out, I'm here. And I still, I couldn't exactly tell you why I said that Hmm. or it was like, I don't know. It was a strange feeling. It was like being, it's like feeling like I was being left behind or like forgotten, but also like I was announcing myself um, I wanted the, the the whole world to know that I was there. And it was with mm. this kind of urgency. Like, I'm here. I'm in the world. I promise. Like, I'm here. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then the first night I was there, it was cloudy and kind of raining. And I remember sitting in my trailer and just thinking, like, this sucks. Like, I was playing solitaire. And I was like, it's rainy. I'm in this tiny place. I'm not going to get to see the Northern Lights. It's going to rain. This is terrible. Hmm. And I, I think I cried myself to sleep. Hmm. And then the next night, uh, I was like, please, please, please let it be clear. Let it be clear. Just all day. I went and checked out a couple of art galleries, saw some really beautiful work. Um, one of the things that I saw that I loved was uh, plants that were growing in a gallery under a grow light that were being grown from these seeds that had been um, gathered in an archaeological expedition. Wow, cool. Old, so, old seeds. Very old mm. seeds. And I remember standing in front of that for a really long time and just looking at these green sprouts and mm. just thinking, like, how things can grow out of something that you've left behind and just kind of how, like, extraordinarily temporary life is and Mm -hmm. just the brevity of all of it and just thinking about all that I had learned and everything I had kind of been through in the preceding year and and then that night lo and behold it was clear and Mm. um when I first walked out of my trailer you like in the urban area you can't really see the lights very well. It's kind of like, you're like, am I seeing light pollution? Like, what Mm. is that real? Like what's going on? And I was in Keflavik, not Reykjavik, Mm. um, which is a smaller town. Um, but I still, it was very cold and I'd had a, I had a jacket that I had dragged around the world with me and had never (laughs) used. And it was constantly (laughs) irritating me. And Uh finally my last night, I desperately needed the jacket. Otherwise (laughs) I would have frozen. So I bundled up and I just walked and I walked Mm. far out beyond the border of this little village. And Mm -hmm. I went up onto this bluff, like bluff over the sea. And um, when I was looking out, there was something I saw there that was just, extraordinary 
in its own right, which was I still couldn't quite make out the Aurora Borealis, but <laughs> I saw a shooting star fall into the sea. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. And, yeah, it was, oh, you have a dog. <laughs> yeah, we do. I just realized she's just barking her head off right behind us on the recording. So, yeah, Lola, we might need to take a minute <laughs> for this day yeah, noir. So, yeah. so, yeah, I saw, I saw a shooting star fall mm. into the ocean. Yeah. And, um, and then I, I kept walking. And then the second thing that I said out loud uh, in my I remember was I went and I climbed up onto this little hill and it was really cold and I was bundled up and I was shivering but I couldn't take my eyes off the aurora it was incredible mm. it was you know it's it's silent which mm. I think was startling to me for some reason I thought it was going to make a sound huh. <laughs> it doesn't um, <laughs> completely silent but like this shifting veil that looks like it separates worlds. It mm. looks like it's, it looks like a portal. It looks like a gate to somewhere else. It looks like just this extraordinary thing. And it was actually a really beautiful display. There were, there was like pink around the edges and green. I was so lucky to see it in this kind of glory. And I was huddled on this hill, just like shuddering, shuddering, mm. um, and looking up at it. And I remember hanging out there for as long as I could late at night before I would get too cold to make the walk back. I probably was on the hill for about 30 minutes. Mm. And then I stood up and I called out and I said, okay, you win. I'm going to live. <laughs> Oh my goodness. That's right because you you were telling me how you had thought that you you wouldn't if if you were going to kill yourself ever that you wouldn't do it until you had seen the aurora yeah. borealis and so now you had yeah. seen it and yeah. you, you get you gave in that you were that you were going to live. You were going to Yeah. You yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. It was like it was like that that could have been the time too. Yeah. You know, I was like mourning the death of my first love and had been through this really hard summer and was there alone and I could have just flung myself into the sea sure um you know there was like there was definitely a weird part of me that was like that thought that in a way right um, like kind like maybe a kind of beautiful moment for that even in a way yeah mm. yeah it was mm. like just this yeah the recognition of all this um the fragility of life and the the brevity of time and the intensity of emotion when you really are giving yourself over to living an authentic life mm -hmm. and just how how hard that is and you know Sam and I as teenagers we were we were melancholy we called each other Hamlet and Ophelia mm. so we always had this kind of vague suicide vibe about mm. us anyway because both of those characters kill themselves um and when he had died i remember one of the things that i said aloud again i was in the yurt at the time but i i was like talking aloud to process it and i got kind of drunk the night that he i got the news and i mm. said i said damn it you stupid fuck ophelia dies first mm. 
And that was one of my moments of like frustration with him for leaving. Hmm. Um, but there was, I think there was something there that was just like this person that I loved so much had gone from me. And, and there was a part of me that just kind of wanted to follow that maybe, or hmm. I don't know. You know, they say that they say suicide is contagious socially. Is it? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, they've, yeah. Hmm. they've marked people who study it. There aren't very many of them because I imagine that you're not very popular at dinner parties. Right. <laughs> no. People are like, what do you do? I mm-hmm. study suicide. <laughs> oh, great. Never come over again. Oh, um, my goodness, yeah. But people who do, um, and they're probably, they probably all live in Berlin and they're all fine. Mm. <laughs> um, but people who study it say that uh, suicides in social groups can uh, create like a domino effect of other people who have been sad also considering that option. Mm. But for myself, I saw the Northern Lights and then decided I would just stick with it. That's good. I'm happy you're alive and I'm happy that, Me too. you know that your sentiments changed, it sounds like. Do, yeah. you, do you feel like it really has? Do you feel like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I, That's good. In many ways, the past, like, year or so has been one of the more challenging in approaching my own mental health, but it is because I have decided very firmly that suicide is not an option for me. Mm. So that means that I have to deal with things. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's like the difference between living with them for like another six months until I become just too exhausted to carry on anymore. Or being like, well, we've got approximately 40 to 50 more years. So probably we want to work this out. <laughs> yeah. You're going you're gonna, to gonna have to become a person who somehow learns to just continually sort with all this life stuff. You know? Yeah. And like, and it's never going to stop. You know? Or, or I guess mm-hmm. it, it may be supposedly well I mean the thing is is like do you think it really stops with death because I think you know having known you before this before we've spoken tonight but also especially after having heard your story today you know do you you know I don't I would say I don't think of you as a person who would think that it stops after death so so do you think that even if you if you died do you, does it suspend, I guess, sort of the, the challenges of the soul? Well, no, not exactly. I think you're just on to, I think you're on to different ones. And I think if anything, what I've been exploring over the past couple of years is it's like a kind of, um, acceptance of suffering rather than a denial of suffering because I think that denial of suffering is actually what creates all of the like mental health hardship that I have experienced it's kind of trying to like Mm -hmm. turn away from things rather than go towards them Um, Mm. I think that the craving for death is essentially a craving for change Mm. Um, and I think that uh, you have a better better chance of changing things in this material life if you address them directly than if you try to keep them at bay all the time. Yeah. So so yeah, I mean I don't I don't think it it ends the suffering or the the struggle, but I think 
it changes it. And I think sometimes it seems like it's going to be enough of a change, especially for people, you know, like Sam had, he had dealt with drug addiction and things like that for years. And so there's this kind of like the idea that it will change the material circumstances, Mm. meaning maybe on the other side, you won't be a drug addict anymore. And I think that's true. Mm. But, But yeah. The, the journey of the soul. Now it's kind of like, it's it's remarkable to me to have come around to this point because um, without even realizing it, I think that ever since I was probably about 13, you know, so 20 years before this big journey took place, I think I had become accustomed to thinking of myself as someone who would never live past about 35 or 40. Mm. Um, I just had the idea that I would eventually kill myself. And that was like something that I lived with and thought was my fate on an almost constant basis. Um, But then suddenly through all of this, I now have like plans for how I would like to grow old and places that I would like to go and other things that I'd like to see, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, The beautiful thing about arranging for myself to go and see the Northern Lights was that rather than being like a checking a box that was like, okay, well now I've seen the thing and and it's done. It's opened up a whole new world of other things that I wish to see before I leave the world. Wow. You know, one of the reasons I started this podcast was to share stories like this um, in which people are experiencing the world in a way that goes so much further beyond tourism. We are capable of exploring the world in a vast variety of ways, in an infinite variety of ways. And I love the way that Olivia was exploring and working through some deeper things through travel and through putting herself in new places um, that would bring different experiences out uh, in her person. Uh, working things out and even performing things out uh, in this case. I'm so thankful to Olivia for sharing that story with us. And I wanted to uh, share with the audience some ways in which they can stay in touch with Olivia and support her work, be involved with her work. Uh, She does astrological writings and readings and tarot readings and a number of courses. Um, You can uh, sign up and check out courses that she offers at linktr.ee slash Olivia Pepper. That's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash O-L-I-V-I-A-P-E-P-P-E-R. You can also follow her and support her at patreon.com. And her Patreon page is at patreon.com slash Olivia Pepper. Uh, she posts her astrological writings and audio there. Um, and she also has a Instagram raffle going on right now. If you follow her at Olivia Pepper, you can find out about the raffle and of course, all the other things that she's up to these days. Um, and, uh, Be sure to subscribe to the Fortuna Monsoon podcast and rate it on iTunes and subscribe on Stitcher as well uh, if you're listening there. 
uh, tune in for the next episode, uh, which will be coming out in another couple of weeks. Thank you so much for listening to this third episode of the Fortuna Monsoon podcast and the second episode of Olivia Pepper's Trans-Siberian Pilgrimage. Hope you have a great week. Thanks. Thanks.